When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and it's time for another journey into classic literature, this time with Mark Twain's A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. In this story, a Yankee engineer from Connecticut named Hank Morgan receives a blow on the head and is transported in time and space to England during the time of King Arthur. In this tale, Mark Twain, through the eyes of Hank Morgan, takes a look at medieval England as it really was. And here the main character begins to realize that his whole view of that time was clouded over by romantic myths. So he decides to Americanize and improve the lives of the people there, with sometimes hilarious, sometimes sad results. But not before he's threatened by Merlin with being burned at the stake. Hank uses his knowledge to survive and soon thrives as King Arthur's right-hand man, the boss. The main thrust of the novel is a satire of the romanticized ideas of chivalry and of the idealization of the Middle Ages, which was common in 19th century literature, especially in the novels of Sir Walter Scott, for whom Twain carried a definite dislike. He believed that Scott's romanticizing of battle was partly responsible for the southern state's decision to fight the Civil War. In his book Life on the Mississippi, Twain writes, It was Sir Walter that made every gentleman in the South a major or a colonel, or a general, or a judge, before the war. And it was he, also, that made these gentlemen value these bogus decorations. For it was he that created rank and caste down there, and also reverence for rank and caste, and pride and pleasure in them. Sir Walter had so large a hand in making Southern character, as it existed before the war, that he is in great measure responsible for the war. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court has been adapted many times for film, TV, stage, and even cartoons. In 1987, Disney paid homage to the story in a first-season episode of DuckTales, Sir Gyro de Gierlouse, in which Gyro builds a time machine and flees the modern age for the time of King Arthur, taking Huey, Dewey, and Louie along for adventure. It has also inspired many variations and parodies, such as the 1979 Bugs Bunny special, A Connecticut Rabbit in King Arthur's Court. In 1995, Walt Disney Studios adapted the book into the feature film a kid in King Arthur's court. In the Carl Sagan novel Contact, the protagonist, Eleanor Erroway, is reading a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, specifically the scene where Hank first approaches Camelot, when she finds out about her father's death. The quotation, Bridgeport? said I. Camelot, said he, is also used later in the book, and the story is used as a metaphor for contact between civilizations at very different levels of technological and ethical advancement. Even the television series MacGyver includes a two-part adaptation in the episode titled Good Night MacGyver, Season 7, Episodes 7 and 8, 
in which a modern-day engineer is transported to Arthur's court, where he uses his magic, known science, to assist Merlin, to assist Merlin and save the king from a deadly plot. For you MacGyver fans, after over six seasons on the air, the second part is the only episode to ever reveal MacGyver's first name. Mark Twain was no stranger to criticism, which he promptly received from England after the book, which thought their traditions had been attacked, as well as Southern sympathizers here in the States who felt their values of chivalry had been lampooned. This is one of those books that can really generate some interesting conversation around the dinner table. I hope you enjoy it, and if you do, send us some reviews. Thanks. And now, our story. And now, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, by Mark Twain. We begin with part of the prelude, The Stranger's History. I am an American. I was born and reared in Hartford, in the state of Connecticut. Anyway, just over the river, in the country. So I am a Yankee of the Yankees, and practical. Yes, and nearly barren of sentiment, I suppose. Or poetry, in other words. My father was a blacksmith, my uncle was a horse doctor, and I was both, along at first. Then I went over to the great arms factory and learned my real trade, learned all there was to it. Learned to make everything, guns, revolvers, cannon, boilers, engines, all sorts of labor-saving machinery. Why, I could make anything a body wanted, anything in the world. It didn't make any difference what. And if there wasn't any quick newfangled way to make a thing, I could invent one, and do it as easy as rolling off a log. I became head superintendent, had a couple of thousand men working under me. Well, a man like that is a man that is full of fight. That goes without saying. With a couple of thousand rough men under one, one has plenty of that sort of amusement. I had, anyway. At last I met my match, and I got my dose. It was during a misunderstanding conducted with crowbars with a fellow we used to call Hercules. He laid me out with a crusher alongside the head that made everything crack and seemed to spring every joint in my skull and made it overlap its neighbor. Then the world went out in darkness, and I didn't feel anything more, and didn't know anything at all, at least for a while. When I came to again, I was sitting under an oak tree, on the grass, with a whole beautiful and broad country landscape, all to myself, nearly. Not entirely, for there was a fellow on a horse, looking down at me, a fellow fresh out of a picture book. He was in old-time iron armor from head to heel, with a helmet on his head the shape of a nail keg with slits in it, and he had a shield, and a sword, and a prodigious spear, and his horse had armor on too, and a steel horn projecting from his forehead, and gorgeous red and green silk trappings that hung down all around him like a bed quilt, nearly to the ground. "'Fair sir, will ye just?' said this fellow. "'Will I which?' "'Will you try a passage of arms for land or lady, or for—' "'What are you giving me?' I said. "'Get along back to your circus, or I'll report you.' "'Now what does this man do but fall back a couple of hundred yards, "'and then come rushing at me as hard as he could tear, "'with his nail keg bent down nearly to his horse's neck, "'and his long spear pointed straight ahead? "'I saw him in business, so I was up the tree when he arrived. "'He allowed that I was his property, the captive of his spear.' There was argument on his side, and the bulk of the advantage, so I judged it best to humor him. We fixed up an agreement whereby I was to go with him, and he was not to hurt me. I came down, and we started away, I walking by the side of his horse. We marched comfortably along, through glades and over brooks which I could not remember to have seen before, 
which puzzled me, and made me wonder. And yet we did not come to any circus, or sign of a circus. So I gave up the idea of a circus, and concluded he was from an asylum. But we never came to an asylum. So I was up a stump, as you might say. I asked him how far we were from Hartford. He said he had never heard of the place, which I took to be a lie, but allowed it to go with that. At the end of an hour we saw a faraway town sleeping in a valley by a winding river, and beyond it, on a hill, a vast gray fortress with towers and turrets, the first I had ever seen out of a picture. Bridgeport? said I, pointing. Camelot, said he. My stranger had been showing signs of sleepiness. He caught himself nodding, now, and smiled one of those pathetic, obsolete smiles of his, and said, I find I can't go on. "'But come with me. I've got it all written out, and you can read it if you like.' "'In his chamber,' he said, First I kept a journal. Then, by and by, after years, I took the journal and turned it into a book. How long ago that was!' He handed me his manuscript, and pointed out the place where I should begin. "'Begin here. I've already told you what goes before.' He was steeped in drowsiness by this time. As I went out at his door, I heard him murmur sleepily, I give you good den, fair sir. I sat down by my fire and examined my treasure. The first part of it, the great bulk of it, was parchment, and yellow with age. I scanned a leaf particularly, and saw that it was palimpsest. Under the old dim writing of the Yankee historian appeared traces of a penmanship which was older and dimmer still. Latin words and sentences, fragments from old monkish legends, evidently. I turned to the place indicated by my stranger, and began to read, as follows. Chapter 1. Camelot Camelot! Camelot! said I to myself. I don't seem to remember hearing of it before. The name of the asylum, likely. It was a soft, reposeful summer landscape, as lovely as a dream, and as lonesome as Sunday. The air was full of the smell of flowers, and the buzzing of insects, and the twittering of birds, and there were no people— no wagons, there was no stir of life, nothing going on. The road was mainly a winding path with hoof-prints in it, and now and then a faint trace of wheels on either side in the grass, wheels that apparently had a tire as broad as one's hand. Presently a fair slip of a girl, about ten years old, with a cataract of golden hair streaming down over her shoulders, came along. Around her head she wore a hoop of flame-red poppies. It was as sweet an outfit as ever I saw, what there was of it. She walked indolently along, with a mind at rest, its peace reflected in her innocent face. The circus man paid no attention to her, didn't even seem to see her, and she, she was no more startled at his fantastic makeup than if she was used to his like every day of her life. She was going by as indifferently as she might have gone by a couple of cows, but when she happened to notice me, then there was a change. Up went her hands, and she was turned to stone, her mouth dropped open, her eyes stared wide and timorously. She was the picture of astonished curiosity touched with fear. And there she stood, gazing, in a sort of stupefied fascination, till we turned a corner of the wood and were lost to her view. That she should be startled at me, instead of at the other man, was too much for me. I couldn't make heads or tail of it. And that she should seem to consider me a spectacle and totally overlook her own merits in that respect was another puzzling thing and a display of magnanimity, too, that was surprising in one so young. There was food for thought here. I moved along as one in a dream. 
"'As we approached the town, signs of life began to appear. "'At intervals we passed a wretched cabin, with a thatched roof, "'and about it small fields and garden patches in a different state of cultivation. "'There were people, too, brawny men, with long, coarse, uncombed hair "'that hung down over their faces and made them look like animals. "'They, and the women, as a rule, were a coarse tow-linen robe "'that came well below the knee, and a rude sort of sandal, "'and many wore an iron collar.' The small boys and girls were always naked, but nobody seemed to know it. All these people stared at me, talked about me, ran into the huts and fetched out their families to gape at me, but nobody ever noticed that other fellow except to make him humble salutation and get no response for their pains. In the town were some substantial windowless houses of stone scattered among a wilderness of thatched cabins. The streets were mere crooked alleys and unpaved. Troops of dogs and nude children played in the sun and made life a noise. Hogs roamed and rooted contentedly about, and one of them lay in a reeking wallow in the middle of the main thoroughfare and suckled her family. Presently there was a distant blare of military music. It came nearer, still nearer, and soon a noble cavalcade wound into view, glorious with plumed helmets and flashing mail and flaunting banners and rich doublets and horse-claws and gilded spearheads, and through the muck and swine, and naked brats, and joyous dogs, and shabby huts, it took its gallant way, and in its wake we followed. Followed through one winding alley, and then another, and climbing, always climbing, till at last we gained the breezy height where the huge castle stood. There was an exchange of bugle-blasts, then a parley from the walls, where men-at-arms, in Halberk and Morion, marched back and forth with halberded shoulder under flapping banners with the rude figure of a dragon displayed upon them. And then the great gates were flung open, the drawbridge was lowered, and the head of the cavalcade swept forward under the frowning arches. And we, following, soon found ourselves in a great paved court, with towers and turrets stretching up into the blue air on all the four sides. And all about us the dismount was going on, and much greeting and ceremony, and running to and fro, and a gay display of moving and intermingling colors, "'and an altogether pleasant stir and noise and confusion. "'We'll return with Chapter 2 right after these sponsor messages. "'Chapter 2. King Arthur's Court "'The moment I got a chance I slipped aside privately "'and touched an ancient common-looking man on the shoulder "'and said, in an insinuating, confidential way, "'Friend, do me a kindness. "'Do you belong to the asylum, or are you just on visit, "'or something like that?' "'He looked me over stupidly and said, "'Mary, fair sir, me seemeth. Oh, "'That will do,' I said. "'I reckon you're a patient.' "'I moved away, cogitating, "'and at the same time keeping an eye out "'for any chance passenger in his right mind "'that might come along and give me some light. "'I judged I had found one presently, "'so I drew him aside and said in his ear, "'If I could see the head keeper a minute, "'only just a minute.' "'Prithee, do not let me.' "'Let you what?' "'Hinder me, then.' "'if the word pleased thee better.' "'Then he went on to say he was an undercook "'and could not stop to gossip, "'though he would take it another time, "'for it would comfort his very liver "'to know where I got my clothes. "'As he started away, he pointed and said, "'Yonder was one who was idle enough for my purpose, "'and was seeking me besides, no doubt. "'There was an airy, slim boy in shrimp-coloured tights "'that made him look like a forked carrot. "'The rest of his gear was blue silk "'and dainty laces and ruffles, "'and he had long yellow curls,' "'and wore a plumed pink satin cap "'tilted complacently over his ear. "'By his look he was good-natured. "'By his gait 
He was satisfied with himself. He was pretty enough to frame. He arrived, looked me over with a smiling and impudent curiosity, said he had come for me, and informed me that he was a page. "'You're a page? Go long. You ain't more than a paragraph.' It was pretty severe, but I was nettled. However, it never fazed him. He didn't appear to know he was hurt. He began to talk and laugh in happy, thoughtless, boyish fashion as we walked along, and made himself old friends with me at once, asked me all sorts of questions about myself and about my clothes, but never waited for an answer, always chattered straight ahead, as if he didn't know he had asked a question and wasn't expecting any reply, until at last he happened to mention that he was born in the beginning of the year 513. It made the cold chills creep over me. I stopped and said, a little faintly, um, "'Maybe I didn't hear you just right. "'Say it again, and say it slow. "'What year was it?' "'513.' "'513? "'You don't look it. "'Come, my boy. "'I'm a stranger and friendless. "'Be honest and honorable with me. "'Are you in your right mind?' "'He said he was. "'Are these other people in their right minds?' "'He said they were. "'And this isn't an asylum.' I mean, it isn't a place where they cure crazy people? He said it wasn't. Well, then, I said, either I'm a lunatic or something just as awful has happened. Now tell me, honest and true, where am I? In King Arthur's court, he said. I waited a minute to let that idea shudder its way home, and then said, And, according to your notions, what year is it now? 528, 19th of June. I felt a mournful sinking at the heart and muttered, I shall never see my friends again. Never, never again. They will not be born for more than 1,300 years yet. I seemed to believe the boy. I didn't know why. Something in me seemed to believe him. My consciousness, as you might say. But my reason didn't. My reason straightway began to clamor. That was natural. I didn't know how to go about satisfying it, because I knew that the testimony of men wouldn't serve. My reason would say they were lunatics, and throw out their evidence. But all of a sudden I stumbled on the very thing, just by luck. I knew that the only total eclipse of the sun in the first half of the 6th century occurred on the 21st of June, A.D. 528, and began at three minutes after 12 noon. I also knew that no total eclipse of the sun was due in what to me was the present year. 1879. So if I could keep my anxiety and curiosity from eating the heart out of me for 48 hours, I should then find out for certain whether this boy was telling me the truth or not. Wherefore, being a practical Connecticut man, I now shoved this whole problem clear out of my mind till its appointed day and hour should come, in order that I might turn all my attention to the circumstances of the present moment, and be alert and ready to make the most out of them that could be made. One thing at a time is my motto and just play that thing for all it's worth, even if it's only two pair and a jack. I made up my mind to two things. If it was still the 19th century, and I was among lunatics and couldn't get away, I would presently boss that asylum or know the reason why. And if, on the other hand, it really was the 6th century, I didn't want any softer thing. I would boss the whole country inside of three months, for I judged I would have the start of a best-educated man in the kingdom by a matter of 1,300 years and upward. I'm not a man to waste time after my mind's made up, and there's work on hand. So I said to the page, 
"'Now, Clarence, my boy, if that might happen to be your name, "'I'll get you to post me up a little if you don't mind. "'What's the name of that apparition that brought me here?' "'My master and thine? "'That is the good knight and great lord, Sir Kay the Seneschal, "'foster brother to our liege the king.' "'Very good. Go on. Tell me everything.' "'He made a long story of it, "'but the part that had immediate interest for me was this. "'He said I was Sir Kay's prisoner.' and that in due course of custom I would be flung into a dungeon and left there on scant commons until my friends ransomed me, unless I chanced to rot first. I saw that the last chance had the best show, but I didn't waste any bother about that. Time was too precious. The page said, further, that dinner was about ended in the great hall by this time, and that as soon as the sociability and the heavy drinking should begin, Sir Kay would have me in and exhibit me before King Arthur and his illustrious knights seated at the round table and would brag about his exploit in capturing me, and would probably exaggerate the facts a little. But it wouldn't be good for me to correct him, and not over-safe, either. And when I was done being exhibited, then ho for the dungeon. But he, Clarence, would find a way to come see me every now and then, and cheer me up, and help me to get word to my friends. Get word to my friends! I thanked him. I couldn't do less, and about this time a lackey came to say I was wanted. So Clarence led me in, and took me off to one side, and sat down by me. Well, it was a curious kind of spectacle, and interesting. It was an immense place, and rather naked, yes, and full of loud contrast. It was very, very lofty, so lofty that the banners depending from the arched beams and girders, away up there, floated in a sort of twilight. There was a stone-reeled gallery at each end, high up, with musicians in the one, and women, clothed in stunning colors, in the other. The floor was of big stone flags laid in black and white squares, rather battered by age and use, and needing repair. As to ornament, there wasn't any, strictly speaking, though on the walls hung some huge tapestries which were probably taxed as works of art. Battle pieces, they were, with horses shaped like those which children cut out of paper or creating gingerbread, with men on them in scale armor, whose scales are represented by round holes, so that the man's coat looks as if it's been done with a biscuit punch. There was a fireplace big enough to camp in, and its projecting sides and hood, of carved and pillared stonework, had the look of a cathedral door. Along the walls stood men-at-arms, in breastplate and morion, with halberds for their only weapon, rigid as statues, and that is what they looked like. In the middle of this groined and vaulted public square was an oaken table which they called the round table. It was as large as a circus ring, and around it sat a great company of men dressed in such various and splendid colors that it hurt one's eyes to look at them. They wore their plumed hats, right along, except that whenever one addressed himself directly to the king, he lifted his hat a trifle, just as he was beginning his remark. Mainly they were drinking, from entire ox-horns, but a few were still munching bread or gnawing beef-bones. There was about an average of two dogs to one man, and these sat in expected attitudes, "'till a spent bone was flung to them. "'And then they went for it by brigades and divisions, "'with a rush, and there ensued a fight "'which filled the prospect with a tumultuous chaos "'of plunging heads and bodies and flashing tails, "'and the storm of howlings and barkings "'deafened all speech for the time. "'But that was no matter, "'for the dog-fight was always a bigger interest anyway. "'The men rose, sometimes, to observe it the better, "'and bet on it, "'and the ladies and the musicians "'stretched themselves out over their balusters "'with the same object.' and all broke into delighted ejaculations from time to time. 
In the end, the winning dog stretched himself out comfortably with his bone between his paws, and proceeded to growl over it, and gnaw it, and grease the floor with it, just as fifty others were already doing, and the rest of the court resumed their previous industries and entertainments. As a rule, the speech and behavior of these people were gracious and courtly, and I noticed that they were good and serious listeners when anybody was telling anything. I mean in a dog-fightless interval. And plainly, too, they were a childlike and innocent lot, telling lies of the stateliest pattern with the most gentle and winning naivete, and ready and willing to listen to anybody else's lie and believe it, too. It was hard to associate them with anything cruel or dreadful, and yet they dealt in tales of blood and suffering with a guileless relish that made me almost forget to shudder. I was not the only prisoner present. There were twenty or more. Poor devils! Many of them were maimed, hacked, carved, in a frightful way, and their hair, their faces, their clothing, were caked with black or stiffened drenchings of blood. They were suffering sharp physical pain, of course, and weariness, and hunger and thirst, no doubt, and at least none had given them the comfort of a wash, or even the poor charity of a lotion for their wounds. Yet you never heard them utter a moan or a groan, or saw them show any sign of restlessness, or any disposition to complain. The thought was forced upon me. The rascals! They have served other people the same way in their day, it being their own turn. Now they were not expecting any better treatment than this. So their philosophical bearing is not an outcome of mental training, intellectual fortitude, reasoning. It's mere animal training. They are white Indians. Thanks for joining us for chapters 1 and 2 of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Hope you're enjoying the story. If you are, please do send us a review. We appreciate reviews, and they help new listeners find us. We'll return next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon at 1001 Stories for the Road. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen on sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money.